Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Across the UK, online, on DAB, and on your smart speaker. The Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. Good morning and welcome to the Independent Republic of Mike Graham right here on Talk Radio. So, uh, the truth is out there and it isn't pretty. Despite the new vaccines, despite the social distancing, despite the masks, despite the shutting down of all fun in the month of November, they're starting to say it. Yes, that's right. As we edge ever nearer to week three of the lockdown, the government scientists are giving the game away. And here's their message. Um, It might not actually be working. Well, that's torn it. Imagine shutting everything down apart from a few things. Imagine loads of people carrying on with their everyday lives. Imagine lots of businesses failing as a result of not being able to do business. Then imagine that it was all for nothing. We've had plenty of guests lately who've warned that the lockdown wasn't actually necessary and that while we are hearing this morning that the rate of infection might be slowing, it is apparently and supposedly not slowing enough. So what's going to happen next then? Are we going to get to December the 2nd and everyone's going to go, well, do you know, the thing is, it didn't really work. So we're going to have to keep it going for a bit longer so that it doesn't work a bit more. 0344 499 1000. One place where our pressure seems to have worked is on the care home sector. Yesterday, Health Secretary Matt Hancock vowed to extend COVID testing to visitors in time for Christmas. So you will indeed be able to hold the hand of your grandma. You will indeed uh, be able to hug uh, possibly your grandfather. You will indeed uh, be able to see those loved ones that you haven't seen for months and months and months. That's going to change, apparently, in time for Christmas. And it's not before time. We're going to speak to Dame Esther Ranson about all of that. 0344 499 1000. We'll head up to Scotland later on with Donald McLeod for news on their latest lockdown madness because they, apparently, want to make it worse. And we'll be asking TV critic Mike Ward just how much stuff Netflix royal writers have made up for the latest series of The Crown. And should they be able to do that? As ever, of course, we want to hear from you. The streets seem busier than ever this morning. Can this spurious lockdown even last until December? 0344 499 1000. You're listening to me, Mike Graham, of course, on the fastest growing radio station on the planet. It's Talk Radio. Mid-morning with Mike Graham. Talk Radio. Now, there was a briefing yesterday afternoon with Matt Hancock. Boris Johnson, of course, is in day two of his uh, self-isolation because uh, he was in contact uh, with one Lee Anderson MP last week in a meeting in Downing Street where not only he but five other MPs are now self-isolating. Lee Anderson, of course, has got coronavirus. We wish him well. Hopefully he'll make a speedy recovery from it. It won't affect him too badly. But things are not going brilliantly, are they? Uh, after the, uh, the sort of maelstrom of the weekend where Dominic Cummings left the building, as it were, with a box uh, in, clutched in his hands when he went home uh, for the last time, never to return, uh, when, of course, Lee Kane, the guy that's been running communications out of Downing Street, has also gone. Um, nobody's really sure who's in charge of the clattering train. So let's talk to Stuart Jackson, founder, director and strategic counsel at Political Insight, former Conservative MP, of course. Stuart, very good morning to you. Good morning, Mike. So um, I'm not quite sure where to begin, really. I was thinking about talking to you this morning and I thought to myself, well, Stuart will have a view on uh, Brexit, obviously, which we'll talk about. Stuart will also have a view on the running of uh, the office of the prime minister, uh, which nobody's really sure about right now. Uh, But let's kick off, first of all, uh, with these noises that are being made about possibly the lockdown not really working. I mean, I know it's early days and I know that some people are saying, let's wait another week or so to see whether these figures are going to get better. Um, But we're being told at the moment, and it feels like we're being softened up for a bit more of a lockdown i don't think that is going to be politically possible for boris i think that there are many conservative mps who took the view that they were lending him their vote on the 4th of november to agree the second national lockdown which he and the cabinet had specifically said wasn't going to happen Mm. and that they're not going to countenance agreeing to it again and i think it would be very poor management of the parliamentary party and the government if you had 
upwards of 60, maybe 80 or 90 Tory MPs voting against a further lockdown. I just think he is committed to it. He has to, I think, and the Cabinet have to adopt a policy where they accept you can ameliorate and amend the effect of COVID. You can't stop it. You can't eradicate it other than by a vaccine where it will die off of its own accord. And I think that is the problem. That's the constant fight that the politicians are having with the scientists, because I thought it was about managing, Mm. prudently managing the COVID pandemic. It seems to be about now potentially causing huge economic damage in order to eradicate the the pandemic. And that is just impossible. It's not going to happen. No, quite. And I think and I wonder, and this leads us on, I guess, to Dominic Cummings um, and his grip on uh, Downing Street and his grip on the Prime Minister. I mean, we are told that he was very much uh, one of those who was in favour of lockdowns, in favour of trying to suppress the virus. Uh, With him out of the way, is it possible that Boris might now somehow flex his muscles a bit more uh, and bring us more back into a normal kind of way of, of, of going? My worry about it at the moment is that, you know, the whole testing regime was meant to be available to people so that they could get a test, which, if it was negative, could get them back into work. He seems to be using the testing regime and the, and the, and the self-isolation as the reason not to. I think he and the Cabinet probably, on reflection, did not uh, absorb all the data that was available before they made the decision to have the national lockdown, the second national lockdown. Mm. I think there wasn't enough uh, credence given to the impact, the efficacy of the tiered system, tier one, two and three. They were beginning to work. Uh, that there was real-time information that that they needed to look at again. And I think the scientists panicked, and that was really unfortunate. And obviously, as you say, there's been a maelstrom of infighting in number 10 over the last three or four months, and that hasn't obviously been uh, good. Uh, There's been an alienation by the Parliamentary Party and a feeling of MPs being very angry and frustrated for instance, if you look at the free school meals debacle with Marcus Rashford, you know, it's it's not great if you push your MPs out there to put the party line, to put a coherent po- policy forward, and then you, they look round and the ministers aren't there, and then a day later the government capitulates. After a while, MPs begin to think, well, I'm not going to go out on a limb mm. in, in my local media to defend a policy when the government is going to U-turn. And I think that corrosive element uh, in terms of morale and strength of the government. It, it's crazy, really, because, I mean, the government's got an 80-seat majority mm. and, you know, Max Headroom, um, Keir Starmer is... <laughs> I is, got that is, reference. Is, yeah, I mean, he's not the he's he's not the messiah. He's a very naughty boy. Mm. And I think the Labour Party have got a huge distance to go before they're a credible opposition, let alone a government. So, you know... I think Boris just needs to count his blessings, really. Mm. Uh, And I would say that with a Brexit deal and with a COVID vaccine, he has got two important platforms to reset and relaunch the government. Yes, I think that's absolutely right. I mean, Keir Starmer, um, very, very little impact being made by him at the moment. It's almost as though he's not even there. You know, he sort of pops up every so often and the media insists on interviewing him for no apparent reason, where he says nothing particularly important. And nobody really remembers what he said when he does say it. No, I don't think that the, the Labour Party are covering themselves with glory. Having said that, they have taken a view, generally speaking, that they're going to support the government is a national emergency and a national economic and health crisis uh, and and indeed an international crisis. So, you know, I think Boris has got really uh, free reign to potentially reset the clock and start again. But that will depend, as I say, on getting next week uh, the makings of a Brexit deal, which I think is certainly there in the offing, uh, although it will be tough and it will be bloody, And obviously the great news uh, of the vaccine will help. I think also, of course, the AstraZeneca-Oxford vaccine trials are imminent. And that could be a sort of triple whammy of good news on vaccines. But but obviously we need to purchase them and get them out into the health system. And I I think that is a a huge logistical endeavour. 
Yes, I think that's absolutely right. And as far as um, the business at hand, I mean, we're talking uh, we're, we're this week apparently about Boris Johnson doing Prime Minister's questions remotely uh, by Zoom. I'm not quite sure how that will work. I suspect it will be uh, a, a sort of giant waste of time, really. Uh, but what about the uh, the business of Brexit? Because obviously this is a big week. Um, Nigel Farage was on the show yesterday saying, you know, Boris really should be out there front and centre taking control of these Brexit negotiations because in the end, even the EU have conceded, it's down to him as to what the deal is. I agree with Nigel Farage in in the respect that uh, the Prime Minister should be front and centre, but that is usually right at the end of the process. My experience is that even in the days of Theresa May, you know, she only got on the plane to fly to Northern Ireland uh, when the Northern Ireland Protocol was signed, when it looked as if the withdrawal agreement that she signed was ready to go right at the end. And I, th- I do think that both Emmanuel Macron and specifically Angela Merkel will be uh, in what they call the tunnel with Boris right at the end of the process. But I don't think it will be this week or even next week. I think it will be uh, late November, early December. It will be right at the last minute. Obviously, David Davis was ridiculed when I worked for him for saying that, you know, the, the important stuff will be done in in the last 10 minutes rather than the previous 10 months. And mm. I think he's going to be proven right. That will happen. Uh, I, I think COVID has actually made a deal much more likely. And of course, to an extent, the Joe Biden presidency as well. Yeah, I mean, what do you make of uh, of all of that? Because, of course, uh, we're being told that Donald Trump is still basically denying that he's lost. Uh, he's still claiming that he's going to be suing all sorts of people. But it's been going for two weeks now, hasn't it? And, you know, there doesn't seem to be much changing, really. Well, I'm afraid he's in danger of becoming like that Japanese soldier in the Philippines jungle in 1974, who 29 years after the war ended, uh, still thinks he's fighting the imperial enemy. You know, unless he can come up with demonstrably coherent and credible legal cases in particularly in Pennsylvania, but also in maybe Michigan and Arizona to suggest that he won those states, um, then, uh, you know, he, he hasn't really got a case. And I do think if you're asking me, if you're putting me on the spot, Mike, Trump could actually rescue his reputation to an extent if he were to give a barnstorming, gracious, historic speech to say, I did my best, I made massive changes to the to the United States. Which I think better. I don't think there's any doubt that he did. And it's a very close run thing as well, isn't it? I mean whoever yeah, whoever ends up being declared the winner here, I mean it's there's not much in it. No, it's very close, but it's not close enough. You know, Biden is winning Pennsylvania, uh, probably Georgia, Arizona, Michigan by big margins, not 500 votes, but 12, 14, 28,000. You know, Trump's people have got to prove that that number and more were uh, wrongly cast, illegally cast, personation, all the rest of it. And I think that's going to be very, very difficult. And if Trump's not careful, he's going to diminish what good things he did do. He made the Germans think about spending more on defence. He stood up to the Chinese He grew employment in the United States, particularly amongst uh, minority groups. There are some very strong aspects of his record, but that will be obliterated if he's literally pulled, kicking and screaming out of the White House on the 20th of January. Yeah, but there have also been, uh, I suppose, a lot of reasons for him why he shouldn't be particularly gracious to people uh, who spent the best part of the last four years trying to undermine his um, authority and his presidency. Don't get me wrong. I mean, the same people that hate... Trump hate Boris Johnson and you know they they have a platform they have the liberal media I mean CNN has been an utter disgrace oh totally yeah in its editorializing well to be honest Sky's not far behind them really no well Sky of course is owned by Comcast which is a sort of uh, woke TV uh, and pushes all this identity politics and this social liberalism and of course they hate Trump and want to get rid of him Mm. and, and Sky of course are doing their best to undermine Boris Johnson in his government but nevertheless, you know, as John Major, and I don't quote him very often, when the curtain falls, get off the stage. You know, the people have spoken and Trump's got to accept that. And it's it's regrettable from his point of view, because, of course, if he be- performed better in the first debate and COVID had not come along, I know they're two big ifs, but he probably would have won a solid victory in the presidential election. 
Yeah, very possibly. But uh, let's talk some more um, about where Boris goes from here, because technically speaking, if he's going to be sort of sitting in his in his room for the next week and a half, more or less, we then get to December the 2nd. Are you saying that you can't see them extending uh, any sort of lockdown then? I think there would be quite a significant cabinet revolt from people I talk to. It is uh, it's it's not an option because there will there will have to be a battle royal between the politicians and the scientists. And ultimately, the scientists are there to give uh, their advice and to proffer uh, evidence that they can prove. Uh, but but the decision has to be with the government and with ministers. Yeah. And I just cannot see that the evidence is there to semi-permanently close the economy until the new year, uh, coming up to the most important holiday season uh, in the UK. Now, what you said about Matt Hancock, that's very good news about meeting older loved ones in care homes. But, you know, we, we cannot support a social care system and an NHS if we've got uh, an economy that's ruined and permanently scarred. And I... I, what we need to see is definitely a treasury analysis and impact assessment of another lockdown before it's even considered. But I just I think it's unconscionable and I just don't think he'll get it through his own party. No, I think he needs to now take the view um, that he listens to the scientists, but he also listens to his backbench MPs. And he also listens perhaps to other people in the cabinet who are less sure uh, that what has been happening over the course of the last seven or eight months has been the right way to go. Because surely what we need, Stuart, as you said, is a bit more of a flexible kind of approach to to business, to opening up places, to allowing people to work, um, given that now we are in so much better shape in terms of testing and in terms of knowing what's going on. Well, I don't even think people are observing this lockdown, Mike. I mean, I've gone out and about, you know, I'm in a regional city. I'm not in London, but it's nothing like it was in March. Oh, not at all, no. March and April, there was no change. It was like a zombie, it was zombie apocalypse. I mean, there was no one on the street, nothing happening. You go out now, people are in the park, people are going into shops, businesses and commerce is booming, people are on building sites. You know, I think people are washing their hands and they are keeping space. But I, I, I don't see it as a comparison. So I think they'll be even less prepared to support a third lockdown if, if in fact, that happens, which would be a disaster. Yeah, exactly right. Thank you very much indeed. Stuart Jackson there talking to us from uh, the Political Insight Organisation, former Conservative MP, founder, director of Strategic Council uh, of that particular organisation. The bottom line for me uh, is that if the scientists are starting to say, well, the lockdown's not working, uh, so we might have to make the lockdown last longer, Surely there's something wrong with the logic of that statement, because if the lockdown isn't working, it's because the lockdown doesn't work. Surely not because it hasn't been going for long enough, not because nobody's doing what they're supposed to do, because most people who are out and about, most people who are running businesses are doing so within the law, within the rules, within the, uh, the, 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 the safeguards that have been put out there by the government. But there's an awful lot more people this time around who are not willing to make no money whatsoever because the government tells them to work uh, from home or not to work at all. That's simply not happening. Mid-morning with Mike Graham. Talk Radio. The Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. Welcome back to the Independent Republic of Mike Graham right here on Talk Radio. You know what to do. We are the home of common sense. If you were listening to the show last week, you would have heard uh, one caller after another uh, telling us their terrible tales of woe when it came to trying to see uh, their elderly relatives. One uh, lady, Janet, from Newcastle, described how uh, her elderly father, who had gone into um, uh, a care home, was in fact in pretty good spirits before the lockdown, uh, was happy to go and take part in choir practice, happy to play the piano, happy to play the saxophone, very active, very sociable, went into a kind of depression because of the fact that he was isolated and more or less left on his own 24-7. And he eventually took his own life. And there were terrible stories like that um, up and down the country. I'm delighted to say we're joined now by Dame Esther Ranson, uh, founder of The Silver Line. Uh, Dame Esther, a very good morning to you. Thank you for joining us. Pleasure. Now, a great uh, piece uh, of campaigning in the Daily Mail uh, has happened again, their Christmas campaign, and a headline this morning, you can hold Granny's hand at Christmas. Um, We've been uh, talking about this as well on on this show for uh, a good couple of weeks, and thankfully, and you've written a piece today as well, um, this, as you say, could save as many lives as any vaccine. I think that's right. I mean, I was talking to someone who runs an amazingly terrific... um, 
care home in Cheshire, mm. people have described it as a cruise ship on the land because the food's excellent, the staff are completely devoted, they put in a lot of activities. But he says that loving contact is as important as nutrition. Mm. Indeed, it is a form of nutrition for people's heart and soul. And without it, they starve. And I think that... Uh, what has happened is, unfortunately, out of sight, out of mind, care homes have suffered from generations of neglect by so many different governments. Mm. They haven't sorted it out. They haven't produced consistent high standards. And therefore, they hit the headlines when there's some disaster that happens in a care home. But the rest of the time, well, I mean, if you look back on the start of the pandemic, they weren't even counting deaths from COVID mm. in care homes. It was almost as if they didn't matter. And of course, they do matter. And what then happened is the government saw how many deaths there were, which bumped up the national figures and made us look terrible internationally. So they imposed these draconian rules, which are important. I mean, we don't want people to die from COVID, but they do have to bear in mind that if you make it impossible for people to visit, and I have a friend who used to visit her husband every evening and now can only spend half an hour once a fortnight with him, it impacts on her mental health and, of course, on his. Mm, absolutely right. I mean, we spoke to a lot of people last week who said they hadn't seen either their mother or their sister or their brother or their, or their father since March because of these yeah. lockdown conditions. And interestingly, none of them really blamed the individual care homes or the care home workers. They just said, look, these are rules that have been put into place that nobody's really sure about how to interpret. Because, as I've said before, surely there must be ways of, of allowing people to see one another. Absolutely. And uh, what my friend who runs this care home said to me was, they hate it because they're being treated, he said, as if they're the prison service, mm. and they've been told they've got to police these visits. And if anybody attempts to infringe them, well, we had that terrible case of the lady that was arrested yeah. for springing her mother, who suffers from dementia, and putting her in the car. Now, come on, that's not the way we like to perceive our police for our judicial system or the way we treat older people. No, of course. And so, I mean, in terms of the way that the, the government will kind of make this possible, they seem to be hoping that the testing of visitors will be the answer to this. And I guess that that's true. If you can show that you've had a negative test yesterday or something, uh, you ought to be able to be allowed in, right? I think we may have lost Dame Esther. Are you there? We'll try and get Dame Esther back because uh, I think we just dropped the line. Yeah, so Matt Hancock's basically promising uh, that if you want to go and see uh, your elderly relative, you must have a, a test which is negative. And that would seem to be the way forward, Esther. No? No, I thought she was there. She's definitely not there. We'll try and get Dame Esther Ranson back. She's basically written a piece in the mail this morning uh, in which she talks about how people do need um, individual touch. They do need individual contact. They do need visits from their loved ones because it is as important, as she was saying earlier, uh, as any kind of vaccine, as any kind of medicine, because we are, after all, human beings. We need human contact. And if we don't have human contact, regardless of how old we are, we will suffer. Esther, I think we're having a little trouble with the line, but I think we've got you back now. Yes, I'm in the middle of a forest, and I think... Oh, are you? <laughs> the yeah, mobile phones don't like trees, I'm told. No, right, OK. Well, well, maybe if you stand under one or something, that'll be, that'll be good. Um, I was just saying that the reason they think this will work is because mm -hmm. they're going to use the testing process, so that if you've shown to have a negative test, you'll be allowed in. Absolutely, and if they can get the results through, what my friend tells me is things have improved... So that, But he still has to wait three or four days mm. for the results to come through, and that won't work. But if it takes, you know, an hour or around an hour, it means that relatives can call at the care home, get the, the swabs done, go and sit in the car for an hour, see if the results are negative, which we assume and hope they will be, mm. and then be allowed to visit. So that, that would really work, yeah. provided, of course that insurance companies take um, a responsible view. But right now, my friend tells me care homes aren't covered against COVID. So if someone decided to sue them, you know, they could be wiped out. Yes. And that has often been a problem with the care home sector, because you said quite rightly that many governments have kind of not really addressed 
what's going on in that sector. And so much of, of it is run privately. And there are good people that run private organisations and bad ones, you know. And it seems to me it's quite, it's quite inconsistent. Well, when they're good, they're very good. I remember when I was the least successful parliamentary candidate known to <laughs> man or woman in 2010 in Luton, yeah. heaven knows why. It, it, no experiences wasted, but I, I enjoyed it and learned a lot. Mm. One of the places I was invited to visit was a care home um, in Luton. And the staff said to me, you know, if you have a look at our residents who are safe, eating good food, um, involved in lots of activities, choirs, all kinds of things, they just would not be safe if they were left to live on their own in houses which are not appropriate and which can be dangerous mm. um, and and making food for themselves and very lonely. Yeah. But nobody ever shows that side of the coin. And I do think that if this COVID virus has done anything to show how good some of this work is and how important it is and valuable it is and how precious the people they look after are, that would be a good thing. Yes, I think that's absolutely right. I mean, the, the, the government, before all of this happened, in the days before COVID, which seems like a lifetime ago, uh, uh, mm. whenever I think about it, but there was a talk of them sort of trying to reform the care system because it is so expensive apart from anything else and it seems to have an awful lot of unfair unfair sort of parts to it for example if you have a property you're more or less forced to sell it in order to pay for your care but if you don't have a property um you can get the same care uh, without having to put anything into it and it's probably quite an expensive service to run mm. because you know we're asking for people to spend a lot of time a lot of personal care looking after people with you know, skills, actually. Uh, my friend uh, my friend, actually runs a care home which used to be the 19th hole for a golf course. Mm. So he was going to turn it into a hotel. Right. But instead, I think because of personal family reasons, he realized how important the work of care homes were. So he did a degree in gerontology, mm. which means that he really understands how to make older people comfortable, happy, secure and safe. And that that kind of skill we need to reward, don't we? Mm. Not pay them minimum wage, uh, wages and, right. and keep them out of sight, out of mind. No, I think that's very, very true. Dame Esther Ranson, thanks very much indeed. Apologies to anyone who uh, was getting a bit confused there because we were um, having trouble talking at one point or another. Uh, Esther, of course, founder of The Silver Line, a great advocate uh, for people in care homes and as well uh, as a great advocate for the human being as well, because basically what all human beings need, and we've been saying this for a long time on this radio station, is human contact. If you tell people to isolate themselves and not see anybody, no matter what age they are, uh, they will slowly lose uh, their marbles. They won't be able to deal uh, with it after a while because it goes on and on and on and on. And I think that's why an awful lot of people who perhaps did uh, isolate themselves in the first lockdown are not doing it uh, in this one. Mid-morning with Mike Graham. Talk Radio. Let's say a very good morning to Professor Carol Sikora, who is, of course, former head of the WHO Cancer Programme, Dean of Medicine at the University of Buckingham. Uh, Carol, a very good morning to you. Welcome. Good morning, Mike. Thanks very much indeed for joining us. We find ourselves once again at something of a crossroads, I suppose, because we're already getting this noise uh, emanating from Sage that, well, you know, maybe maybe we're not quite doing enough. Maybe it's not quite working as well as it should. Maybe we ought to think about doing something more over Christmas. Uh, I imagine you're not uh, particularly keen on that. Uh, no, <laughs> I was looking for. <laughs> family Christmas with my grandchildren from actually all over the world. And one of them is here, mm. having Peru, but the others are not able to come here. And it may be a pretty bare Christmas for a lot of people. Well, and uh, I think it's terribly sad. Well, it really is. And I mean, we all knew that they might try and sort of push the envelope a little bit more when they decided to shut down uh, for the whole of November. But, but you know, you've got a piece of the sun today saying why this 14 day isolation is not good for the nation, because you're talking about a prime minister um, who yesterday was telling us all how great the track and trace system was and how brilliant it was, pr proven by his uh, getting pinged by the app. 
and proving it by staying inside isolated for 14 days, despite the fact that there's nothing wrong with him. I know. It's, you know, you couldn't organise a brewery to serve beer. I won't use the, the, the usual. <laughs> no. Better than, uh, better than the, the, this government has. It's just unbelievable chaos. And there's no logic to so much of it, whether it's banning tennis, banning golf, banning outdoor sports. Uh, and then on top of it, all the little things about... I mean, I can't understand the logic. I mean, I tried to go through the NHS track and trace, test and trace rules. It's impossible to follow and to try and come up with some logic. And people are following them like sheep. Mm. I mean, it's, and we can't say anything in broadcasting to stop them because, you know, you have to obey the law. I can't say break the law, but the logicality isn't, isn't there. And, you know, you try and explain it to a, a grandchild rather than a medical student and you'd struggle yeah. because it's not logical. But that is the problem, isn't it? Because not everybody, uh, for example, has downloaded the app. So if you don't have the app and you don't get pinged, then you're technically not breaking the law uh, if you don't self-isolate because nobody's told you to do so. Absolutely. There's no obligation to do it. And this idea of compulsion in society is something in Britain, we're very proud of our freedom, of our democracy. And in many other countries, the same. And they don't want to be told to do it. I don't mind listening to a rational argument and doing something if I think it would be good. Mm. But when there's no rational argument, and when there is this nonsense with Boris, he's supposed to have had COVID. Yeah. He's supposed to have had antibodies. He admitted he had antibodies yesterday. So why, why is he isolating? There's no medical sense in all this at all. No. Uh, immune. There are five cases reported of people getting COVID twice. Uh, and that is it in the world literature. And let me tell you, COVID has been more seriously studied in the last six months than any disease in my whole time in medicine. Nothing's been studied so uh, thoroughly. And that's the other thing as well, because not only has he had it uh, already, but surely the whole point of having a decent uh, track and trace and testing system is that you use it in order not to disrupt work. You use it in order to continue to be able to work. You get a test, it's negative, you go back to work. Surely that's what he should be doing. That's exactly right. And when you look at how it operates, the anonymity, which has to be there, has a downside. It means that you can't make the assessment yourself how close you were to someone. If it was working properly, it'd be working on Bluetooth and it'd be automatic. But it's not. We all know it's not working properly, and that the Bluetooth thing is neither here nor there. And mm. people are getting false signals when they're not even in the same room as someone right. that they're supposed to be their contact because Bluetooth goes through walls, viruses don't go through walls. So it was never going to work. And then working on one set of smartphones, not on smartphones as well as it works on iPhones, mm. this sort of nonsense. Surely this is the modern world. People that want to market something to you seem to get around everything. I get lots of spam. I'm sure you do, Mike, mm. uh, from people wanting to sell you something. Why can't we get a decent uh, test and trace system up and running? Yeah. It, it makes Sense. Well, I heard from a doctor yesterday uh, on the show, Professor, which and this will surprise you, who said that he he has signed various certificates for people who have had negative COVID tests, and his signed certificates are being currently sold on the internet by people uh, who have somehow managed to get hold of them. So, I mean, it's a very tricky world in which we live. I'm also told that the Track and Trace app um, works vertically as well as horizontally, so that you could be in a floor above somebody who apparently test positive, and you could get pinged. Yeah, there's all sorts of things wrong. And, you know, the next thing that's coming where we're going to, I can see rows, you've got the students coming up for to go home for Christmas. Mm. We've also got the vaccine. And that is going to cause enormous problems. I mean, you know, in theory, it's a good thing. You have to agree, vaccines in the past have been a great thing. I have a bad feeling about this one. I have a bad feeling, not that it's going to do any harm, but it's going to cause political pressure mm. and political debate, much greater and more hot water and hot air than we've ever had so far about any vaccine before it. Well, if you consider that there's going to be something in the order of 65 million vaccines needed... Um, just for one vaccine for everybody. Um, you know, that's an awful lot of money, first of all. Um, also, you know, we've now got this secondary vaccine that we bought five million doses of. You know, five million doesn't go very far, does it? No, there's 66 million off us. And if you exclude the children, uh, and even if you take top priority older people, say people over 60, uh, you've got a lot of people to get through. Mm. And, uh, 
you know, there, there are two vaccines that have now look as though they're okay. But when we say they look as though they, they're okay, they've just had three months of testing. So you haven't got long-term side effects recorded. By definition, you can't have them. Uh, then on top of that, we really don't know how long the immunity works. Now, if it's only a few months, then the vaccine's next to useless, because that means in the summer, you'd have to have the vaccine again. If, on the other hand, it lasts perpetually, like, you know, polio, for example, fantastic. The answer is probably going to be somewhere in between. In my bet, it would be like the flu vaccine. You have to do it regularly. It mutates a bit. You have to change the vaccine regularly. And you do get some side effects, nothing too serious. But And there, of course, there are going to be people that are conscientious objectors. They generally feel they don't want to have it. What do you do? Do you get the police to arrest them and hold them down? I hope not. I don't think so. Well, I can't imagine that's what would ever happen in this country. But there again, you know, I wouldn't have ever thought that uh, we'd be sitting here talking about a second lockdown, uh, which uh, may or may not turn into a third lockdown, uh, which may or may not mean it's difficult for us to all have Christmas together. But, you know, you see some overzealous police officers operating in, in different situations in different places. But, I mean, Matt Hancock was on Julia Hartley Brewer's show yesterday, refused to rule out. Um, you know, compulsory vaccinations. But I think even he was just not willing to be drawn into that conversation. But but the government surely couldn't ever go down that route. They couldn't, but you could do it subtly. For example, you could have to have it for travel. We, we put up with that. I went somewhere in Tanzania uh, and you had to have a yellow fever trap. Yeah. You had to have a WHO certificate. So we're willing to put up with that to do a particular thing. And it was inspected by the police when I got to the, the land border. Uh, then the other thing we put up was occupational health. So uh, in all my career as a doctor, I've had to have show every two or three years that I've got a certificate that I'm immunised to hepatitis mm. because it's dangerous for patients to have it. And that's fair enough, and so I do it. So imagine if you made 1.4 health million, a million health uh, workers and you say you've got to have the vaccine, otherwise you can't come to work. Mm. Now, that I don't think that'll happen. I think we can get by this by persuasion. It depends, of course, on the results. It depends how good the immunity is and what it allows you to do, what freedom it gives you from what we're seeing with this oppressive lockdown. Yes. The lockdown might be crazy because no one can explain the logic for a lot of it. No. And, uh, there's no logic. Why are we doing this? And also, if you can have, as the health secretary has this morning, uh, Matt Hancock come out and said, yes, we can now test visitors to care homes because so many people have been deprived of, of seeing their loved ones and, and, and even being able to, to, to hold each other's hands. You know, terrible stories that we've heard here on Talk Radio uh, of people whose, whose elderly relatives have either taken their own lives or died in the meantime since they haven't seen them in March. And if they can do that now, why couldn't they have done it sooner? You know, that is the question you have to ask. Why couldn't we have done it right at the beginning in April? We regularly go to my, my wife's got a fantastic great aunt, Auntie Toppy, in a care home in Lowestoft. Now, every three months we go up there on a Saturday, we take her out for lunch and so on. Curry house. She is unusual. And being 90, she actually likes a good vindaloo. And so <laughs> Brilliant. It's, I have to push myself to have this, but I take her out. Right. And, uh, we've not been able to go, obviously, uh, since March. And uh, there's no sign of it coming to an end. And she's got no other, very few other visitors. And it would really be nice just to take her out. And yeah. uh, it's not going to be possible. And a bit of imagination. And all people in care homes could have seen um, their loved ones. And people, everyone would feel much better because of it. Yes. Well, I mean, I just spoke to Esther Ransom earlier in the show who said that, you know, there are certainly um, studies which will show that, that human touch and human contact is as important sometimes as medicine. That's what we teach medical students now. It's all about empathy. Mm. It's a sort of empathy. And not false empathy when you're doing it just to show. But, you know, when you look at customer care staff on, on airlines mm. or in shops, they've got almost more empathy than some healthcare workers. And we need to get that consumer-based training uh, within the health service. Uh, so right from the moment the receptionist greets you by your name, mm. rather than just a number 567, please come forward. Right. Uh, it, we, things have changed over the years, and we are getting better at it. But it's still a bit missing. And it's missing probably because we don't have time. The luxury of time, something that seemed to take place in general practice when I saw it on the television as a small boy. 
It doesn't take place in general practice today, as we all know. It's a hurried consultation. Often it's not, for, it, it's virtual. Hmm. And it, it's often now uh, not even with a doctor. It goes right down the, the food chain of professionalism to try and keep it uh, as efficient hmm. as possible. Well, I'm still hearing I'm still hearing stories, Professor, of people who say they still can't go and see their GP. They still can't access uh, a GP face to face. Everything is done uh, virtually. The GP surgery uh, is rarely actually open, and that needs to change as well, doesn't it? It does. And the GP is the gateway to the system. And tomorrow, Cancer Research UK are going to release data showing that the number of people having cancer imaging, CT, MR, has dropped precipitously all the way through the summer, not Mm. just the first two or three months, but all the way through. And almost certainly, we don't have the data, but I suspect it's still below average for this time of year, which means we're still not diagnosing cancer, which is because... The system is not fully open. And what you just said about GPs not being particularly fully open, not being able to get appointments and uh, looking like Fort Knox still puts people off. It yeah. puts the older people. They don't want to be a trouble to the system. No, quite. And as far as you understand it, um, is anything changing since you and I spoke, say, last about um, cancer treatments and about um, the numbers of people who are not getting treatment? Is it, is it getting any better uh, or is it getting worse? It's getting better. There's absolutely no doubt. People have put a lot of effort into opening up diagnostic systems. They're still below what we'd expect uh, month by month, but they are going up. Mm. And cancer operations, which are the most people have some sort of operation, even if it's just a sampling, we call it a biopsy, uh, radiotherapy, chemotherapy, the systems are all open all around the country. Uh, and they're not under pressure because the pressure is getting the diagnosis done. You know, a thousand people a day are supposed to be diagnosed with cancer. And we're still not at that level. We know that because you just count the number of people that have a positive biopsy and it's not a thousand a day. So uh, we will get there. It takes time, but the system has coped. And I think the testing's there, things are in place. We isolate people for three days, tell them to stay at home after a negative test before they come for cancer treatment, as much for their own good as for the good of the centre to keep it COVID-free. So all these things are now in place. I mean, we're so much better off now than we were at the beginning of April, for example, when it was chaos and we didn't know how bad it was going to get. Yes. Now not going to be too bad it's 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 this pressure but we are going to get over this very soon yeah, well, that's the other thing that I find interesting. I mean, Andrew Rossendall quite rightly pointed out uh, when he was on just before the news that, you know, the death rates, generally speaking, are more or less the same as they were for the past five years at this time of year anyway. Um, so the fact that this lockdown is continuing seems to be kind of uh, overdoing it somewhat. But also, by the time um, certainly you and I uh, get around to getting a vaccine, uh, it will be probably sometime towards the end of next year, at which point the coronavirus might not even be around anymore. That's what I imagine. And by the time it gets around to me, uh, you know, some of my enemies might want to give me some nasty stuff instead <laughs> of. But, but there's, there's no doubt that, uh, that the priority has to be the older people, the frontline staff. And then you, you, get, you go down the, the whole business. So you eventually have herd immunity from the vaccine. Herd immunity has got a bad name, as we know. But it's not a bad concept. The idea is you don't have to immunise or make immune, if they get it naturally, 100% of the population to protect everybody. You get to about 60% and then the virus has nowhere to go, Mm. nowhere to infect, and it basically runs out of of healthy bodies to infect. And the only problem is uh, how long will the vaccine last for? And that is something we have no idea at the moment. Yes. Interesting times. Professor Carol Sakura, as ever, thank you very much indeed for joining us, former head of the World Health Organization's Cancer Programme, Dean of Medicine at the University of Buckingham. Like me, somewhat sceptical about the worth of what this lockdown is going to produce at the end of it. Already, we're starting to hear noises from the old government scientists going, well, maybe it's not going to work. Maybe it's not working. Well, I could have told you that. And in fact, I did tell you that before it happened. Mid-morning with Mike Graham. Talk Radio. The Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. We're going to speak now to Calvin Robinson, political commentator, of course, because um, an interesting story uh, in the mail today uh, in which it says that uh, a think tank uh, has produced these results. Describing people from ethnic minority backgrounds as BAME is useless and the term should be ditched. 
And this is according uh, to a think tank called the Centre for Social Justice. Let's find out what Calvin makes of it all. Calvin, very good afternoon to you. Afternoon, mate. How are you doing today? Yeah, very well indeed. I mean, this will probably come as no great surprise to you. Um, and, you know, I'm told that the, the, the phrase BAME kind of was introduced into the culture back in the 60s and 70s. I don't remember it really being used much before this year, to be honest. No, I'm the same as you, to be honest. I think um, it was ideally used to categorise people for political purposes, but it's become mainstream language to mean non-white. And I don't think we need a term for non-white because we have, well, non-white. Mm. And it's very, very unhelpful because it disguises a lot of societal issues. And this uh, think tank report was fantastic for raising that. Yeah, and this is um, a, a think tank which was created by Sir Ian Duncan Smith. So there will no doubt be those um, on the left who say, well, of course, his think tank would say that. He's a right-wing Tory. You know, they're quite balanced. They've released a lot of reports over the years. Some of them I disagree with. Uh, you know, there are a lot of good findings in this one in particular. As a as an educator, I know that, you know, we can't lump people into large categories and say those people have these specific traits and those people don't because it doesn't work. And what this report does is highlight the differences of these subgroups. And it says, you know, black African kids are excelling throughout school. Um, Indian kids excelling, Bangladeshi kids excelling, mm. white British kids not so much, and black Caribbean kids are the ones that are actually not doing too well. And they'd get forgotten about and missed out if we lumped everyone together as BME, because that would be the black Africans, the black Caribbeans, the Indians, and the Bangladeshis all together. Right. It doesn't make sense. We, you know, we're missing kids out and missing people out in society by trying to bung them all into one group. Yes, and I mean, I've had these conversations with Dr. Rakiba San, as I'm sure you probably know, uh, from the Henry Jackson Society, about pol political kind of leaping to con uh, uh, to confusions where people say, oh, well, of course, you know, the ethnic minority or the Asian minority uh, uh, voters will vote this way. And as he always points out, it's ludicrous to try and make out that, say, people from a Sri Lankan background or a Bangladeshi background or uh, a, a Hindu background from India will all vote the same way. They won't. Of course not. It's bonkers. People don't vote based on the colour of their skin. You know, it's a cultural thing and it's a societal thing. I like um, when you had Dr. Rakib on here once, he said that twice as many people from ethnic minority backgrounds um, agree that there are more issues between different minority groups than there are ethnic minorities against whites. It's essentially saying that BMEs don't get among them, get on among themselves, never mind arguing against white people. The, the issue here isn't societal whites versus non-whites. Every single ethnic minority group has some kind of different issue with another ethnic minority group. Uh, and that's something that gets forgotten about and missed out on because we're always focused on people being white or not. Yes. And that leads to the sort of thing that we saw uh, uh, Sadiq Khan doing last week, which was to announce that, you know, the recruitment process for the police has to change. And he's basically talking about sort of racial quotas, isn't he? How can they say that we need to have 40% of our police officers being recruited from a black or minority ethnic background? I don't think there are that many of us in the country to start with. And it's a massive overcorrection, isn't it? When, what, 12% of the UK population is in an ethnic minority background? How can we have 40% of our police officers? Uh, where does that number come from and why does it make sense? Mm. Surely we should recruit people based on their talent, their skills, their knowledge, uh, and not necessarily based on the colour of their skin. No, exactly right. So, I mean, as far as this uh, think tank report is concerned, do you think it'll get much traction? I mean, it's in the Daily Mail today on page 21, so it's not exactly uh, out front and centre of the news agenda as such. But, I mean, it's, it deserves a, a, a sort of a wider brief, really, doesn't it? And I think it also deserves people like yourself and other people from, from minority ethnic backgrounds kind of speaking out about this. Hopefully it will get some more traction. I've, I've tweeted it out myself um, I think there's a lot in there that needs to be discussed. For example, um, black African families are doing so well, and why are they doing so well compared to black Caribbean families where their children are not doing so well in schools? Mm. And we can see there's a lot of differences there. For example, fatherlessness is a bigger issue in black Caribbean families. You know, um, most, most black Caribbean children come from a family where there is no married parents, mm. um, a non-married household. These are all issues that end up with black Caribbean kids doing less well at school and ending up in crime and if that's an issue that needs to be discussed as a society we need to have that conversation we're, we're too afraid of talking mm. about fatherlessness yeah especially within the 
uncertainties. But if this is what the report is showing, hopefully it will bring it to the public attention. I mean, one of the things I've always said and I would prefer to see is a kind of acknowledgement that there's a class problem in this country rather than a race problem, because in an awful lot of parts of Britain, you know, large portions of the communities are, are white and there are very few people from minority ethnic backgrounds living in those places. But there are still massive problems for poor uh, working class white kids. Absolutely. And this report highlights something we've we spoke about in the past, that white British working class kids are the ones that are getting the most left behind in our country. And that's, again, unacceptable. But people aren't talking about it enough. So nothing's been done about it. So this is good to see another report that shows this issue very clearly so that hopefully our politicians can address it without being afraid of appearing racist mm. uh, or, or unwoke. And interestingly enough, I mean, there are some uh, uh, good politicians in the House of Commons, not, notwithstanding what I usually say about them, you know, and many of them will, are willing to address these issues, like Ben Bradley, for example. But the trouble with a lot of this kind of rollout, if you like, of social policy is it comes from the local councils, doesn't it? Yeah, absolutely. And you're, you're absolutely right to mention Ben Bradley. He's one of the few good ones that have really been championing this case recently because he comes from a, a minus town or he, he's the representative of a minus town where this is full of working class white kids that are being left behind. Uh, but the councils, the local councils aren't doing enough about it. And that's why we need to encourage more schools to become academies, step away from local authority, get more autonomy themselves to uh, implement policy that supports the kids that need it the most, rather than the wokest agenda mm. that the uh, local Labour councils in particular tend to push. Yes, well, amen to that. Let's see if we can push the uh, the wokest agenda out the door uh, as best we can. Calvin, thank you very much indeed. Calvin Robinson, political commentator there on the news, coming from um, a think tank called the Centre for Social Justice, which, as Calvin said, uh, is a very broad-minded and relatively centrist um, think tank. It's not by any means you know, massively right-wing, as some people would no doubt dub it, just because it was set up uh, by Ian Duncan Smith. Um, and there are lots of problems with just using a term for ethnic minorities which somehow ticks a box which doesn't really describe anything at all about the experiences and the different experiences of life uh, that various different communities suffer from and face in this country it makes perfect sense it seems to me what what calvin was saying and what i think as well which is to base things more uh, on underprivileged people and underprivileged children uh, from every background regardless of what the color of their skin is or their ethnicity it's not about that it's about class uh, it's about poverty and it's about people who need to be helped regardless of the situation that they find themselves in talk radio across the uk online on dab and on your smart speaker the independent republic of mike graham on talk radio if you enjoyed that be sure to catch the whole show 10 to 1 monday to friday on talk radio via dab online or via the talk radio app and if you have an opinion on the stories we cover we'd love to hear from you call us on 0344 499 1000 or tweet at Talk Radio during the show to have your say. Mid-morning with Mike Graham. Talk Radio.